1966, in the teenage years of those who would become foundational cyberpunk writers, we see two visions which those writers would later bring together. In a hall of mirrors, a radio host demonstrates the power of the media to shape social reality, while in the wild west of the good, the bad, and the ugly, cowboys, but not the console kind, compete for riches in their own way. As these two stories come together in their audience, they form a double vision. Okay, so I'm here with James McGurk. He's a fellow at the Smart Contract Research Forum and writes our Cyberpunk Now, a substack covering our beautiful, brutal future. And so today we're looking back to 1966 with Robert Stone's novel, A Hall of Mirrors, and the Western film, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, directed by Sergio Leone. And so these are, in interesting ways, two sort of predecessors to that cyberpunk movement that comes around 15 years later. And so this is looking back at moment in, in time in literature and film that is just really fruitful for sort of growing what will then become cyberpunk writers and so on. And so I'd like to start with giving a, just a quick overview of each of the works, make sure everyone sort of knows what we're talking about. And so I'm going to pass it over to, to you, James McGurk, and maybe you could talk a, a bit about the novel, which you had suggested. Sure. Yeah. Thank you so much, Timothy, for, you know, first of all, for having me on here and, you know, and I'm, this is one of my favorite books ever, so I'm, it's really exciting to talk about. And uh, I'll give you a little bit of, um, I, I want to start by talking a little bit about Robert Stone himself. He's, um, he's not related to Roger Stone. He was very much a figure of the 1960s. He was a radio man on a naval boat. And then after that, and probably at the same time that he was at least conceiving of this book, and then um, and probably while he was writing it, he was working at what was probably the 1960s version of fake news. It was um, basically a supermarket tabloid that was kind of a ripoff of the National Enquirer and would kind of like rewrite these articles that they got from the wire services and make these sort of ridiculous headlines uh, uh, from them. And uh, his, his favorite anecdote is one that he made when his art director accidentally spilt ink all over their uh, front page and right before they went to press. And so he very quickly came up with the title, Mad Dentist Yanks Girl's Tongue. So uh, so in that context, kind of makes it's a slightly autobiographical novel, I, I suspect. And uh, so the main character is this man named Reinhardt, who's this Juilliard-trained kind of clarinetist who just kind of flunked, you know, kind of flunked out and uh, turned into this washed-up radio DJ, you know, who after kind of drifting through the United States, kind of ends up in New Orleans and, you know, with a terrible drinking problem. And uh, and he happens to find a job at what seems, you know, it seems like a fabulous opportunity. It's this rapidly expanding radio station called WUSA. And, you know, it's... So he, you know, he has this audition and he kind of very quickly realizes what it is that they're after. They want him to kind of go through this, go through these, uh, these wires and look for these, basically the most racially inflammatory stories that he could possibly find. And so, you know, you get these glorious kind of florid descriptions of both his alcoholism and these kind of ridiculous headlines that he's kind of, uh, stories that he's concocting. And so while he's doing that, you know, while he's kind of, um, kind of finding his footing in the big easy. He kind of assembles this sort of this motley crew. There's a social worker who's also being employed by the same kind of shadowy kind of corporation. Um, sorry, it's not a corporation, it's a single man. And he's running a welfare survey and kind of you're getting this through his eyes. You're being kind of taken through the 
the ghettos of uh, of New Orleans. And then there's also um, the slightly problematic figure of this kind of sad, scarred woman named Geraldine, who's a little bit, just a little bit more self-destructive than he is, and he kind of falls into a relationship with her. There's also this kind of lay preacher who he knows from New York City. And anyway, uh, so this WUSA is trying to whip the city into this racial frenzy, basically trying to trigger a race war. And they basically rent a stadium, um, which I'm assuming is the Astrodome or whatever it's, uh, uh, whatever the one in, uh, whatever the one in New Orleans was called. And they kind of fill their agenda with these firebrand preachers and Infowars-esque paranoids and these kind of loons. And, you know, of course, you know, we'll, we'll be talking about this a little bit more, but this was 1965, 1966 when all this happened. And so this is, you know, two or three years after the assassination of JFK, you know, right before, you know, either right around the same time that it, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. was killed. And so it's, it was just incredibly tense time. And so they plan this, you know, this, basically they're planning this kind of cross burning kind of thing in the middle of this place. And, uh, you know, and ha- they have gunfights and, uh, you know, and the culmination of it is supposed to be this cross burning. And unbeknownst to Reinhardt is the WUSA's owners are paying the police to kind of stand down while the community is kind of getting more and more riled up and probably realizing at the same time that this survey that was going on is intended to kind of get rid of their welfare. And so they start protesting and flinging bottles. And meanwhile, these right-wing people who are attending this this uh, kind of mass kind of mass kind of uh, event they're basically locked in you know they've kind of wrapped you know they've locked all the doors locked all the fences and they're getting more and more kind of uneasy and so just as the stuff is starting to boil over, you know, and there are a couple of moments where Reinhardt kind of, you know, kind of, kind of, he kind of taps into his musical skills and he, he almost could have, could have, you know, kind of saved, you know, kind of steered this kind of mad energy that you can kind of feel starting to kind of build and build. But, you know, somewhere in the middle of all this, this man who was swindled by this crusading right-wing DA, who's, you know, basically being celebrated at this event, suddenly drives a truck filled with dynamite into the arena and sets it off and just kind of obliterating everything and starting all these fires. And so Reinhardt kind of escapes and, it, you know, with some of his crew and they encounter this man who was kind of the brains behind it all. And they realize the man is just it's completely insane. He's just kind of dying of syphilis and has a very tragic ending. I hope I'm not, well, I'm spoiling this thing, but I feel like we're, we've moved beyond spoilers. I tend to just go through all, the whole thing. I mean, it's the whole idea is like really just delve deep into these two visions. So feel free to go into whatever oh thanks yeah i'm of sort of the same mind i think you know when you're discussing literature you have to uh you have to spoil the damn thing right so reinhardt didn't realize that his this doomed kind of girlfriend of his is kind of dashing around all this madness looking basically looking for him and kind of in the thick of it she's caught by the police and you know she had pot or something and she's she had pot and a gun and she's uh and she's arrested and kind of held in a jail cell and she commits suicide and so Reinhardt gets out unscathed and the next morning he basically realizes goes and identifies uh, Geraldine's body and then he's just kind of like in this kind of haze of kind of like shock and depression and then he watches this guy getting thrown out of a bar and then the last kind of moments of it are just where he kind of gets affected with this sort of contagious energy and he says you know he he decides to get himself thrown out of a bar as well and he he kind of lashes out at people so anyway that's that's my that's my summary of it i'm, I'm missing a few chunks of it but that's kind of the swing of it yeah and no, that's a good summary and, and one thing actually interesting is within that there is this cowboy figure as 
well, right? And so the, the radio station is this right-wing sort of America's America kind of idea. And then within that, they bring in this gunslinger for the event at the end. And, you know, he's supposed to be, you know, the sort of image of this American's American. And so the, there's this description of him there where it says, Reinhardt turned around and saw that a cowboy was standing behind him. Below his waist was a silver studded gun belt carrying two pearl handled Colt revolvers. As Reinhardt watched, he pivoted rapidly, drew the revolvers and shouted, ball. He replaced them expertly elegantly outfitted himself with a cigarette and flicked the match into a coffee can. Reinhardt sensed the presence of virtuosity. And so as you know, you have this figure appearing as this lingering image in this rally, you know, amidst the sort of civil rights movement and all of this, you also have the sort of height of Western films. And so you have the good, the bad and the ugly as one of the sort of biggest, most lasting examples coming out the same year. And so there you have these different sort of cowboy figures and in particular you have Clint Eastwood as the man with no name often called throughout the film Blondie by this guy Tuco. Tuco is the ugly, Clint Eastwood is the good and then you have uh, this this guy Angel Eyes he's the sort of bad guy and he's actually a, an officer in the Union Army and the, so the Civil War is going on. This is 1862 so we're going back like a hundred years and Angel Eyes is looking for this confederate sold, this guy who stole a confederate gold and uh he's going around looking for that and meanwhile blondie and tuco are running this sort of scam where tuco has all sorts of bounties on him for terrible crime and so he, he you know clint eastwood goes and he, he cashes in the bounties and then right as he's about to be hanged he saves tuco and they go off and they split the money and eventually he kind of gives up on him and tries to ditch him in the desert and that creates a sort of rivalry but Eventually, they find out about the gold as well. It's like $200,000 in gold. And, you know, this is in 1862 money. And so it's this huge reward. And so it's buried out somewhere in this cemetery. And you create this dynamic where only Blondie, Clint Eastwood's character, knows he finds out the, the name that's on the grave. And the other two find out where it is. And so they're all trying to to get there and they're sort of at odds with each other trying to piece things together and putting together these like temporary sort of collaborations and then trying each other and so on and you know so there, there's the civil war going on and, and so there's a one moment where Blondie and Tuco disguise as confederates trying to sort of assume the identity of the guy they took the information from the guy that uh, angelizes after and then later they're sort of fall in with the sort of union army and and they're operating outside of this society that's at war and really just trying to make their own way make their own money and it culminates in this sort of famous three-way standoff where you know basically the they're all there trying to get the gold and so basically you have blondie as this this very you know the sort of virtuoso that reinhardt imagines the sort of you know for show gunslinger as and you know he he he's there and he's able to sort of win out the whole thing and uh because he's sort of relatively good within all of this he just takes his half and he messes with Tuco a bit but ultimately leaves him his half possibly to, to die with it because you know this is this whole dynamic where you know he leaves Tuco to 
off in the desert. Tuco sort of drags him through the desert and then he leaves him again, you know, with heavy sacks of gold. And so he's, you know, might not make it, but he does leave him his money as agreed. And so, yeah, that, that's that's the film. And, you know, it's the, this these interesting dynamics around morality. And I was in particular interested in the sort of dynamic between being immoral and amoral, right? Because you're, you're talking yeah. about the, the character in um, the Hall of Mirrors, right? And so he's he goes off and starts working for this sort of radical radio station and starts off this race war. And he's really, you know, like these these cowboy characters, he's really just out for his payday. They're paying him this sort of ridiculous rate to do the show. Yeah, 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 absolutely. He's 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 a very similar ca- character. And, and, you know, he, especially with the sort of temporary alliances that he kind of strikes up, there's this, this fabulous lay preacher who he's kind of stumbled across a few times in this kind of kind of sordid underworld kind of days. And, and they both, um, and especially when they're escaping they're kind of kind of pushing themselves through the flames, and then the, the preacher kind of grabs this this luger that um, you know that the uh, that the syphilitic kind of uh, evil mastermind uh, had, and he shoots shoots the man with his own gun on the way out. And it's just you know it's sort of one of these. They're both kind of out for themselves, and uh, kind of um, kind of you know just kind of trying to assemble their you know kind of assembling these temporary things and breaking them and kind of drifting together and drifting apart. I think I, I think in the good and the bad and the ugly i think and and also in hall of mirrors they 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 did seem to be like they both had a very small moment um the good the bad and the ugly when they decided to blow up the bridge they did, it did seem like they did that partly out of uh you know uh, you know that seemed like a turning point where they kind of bonded a little bit and so it became a little bit more of a became a little bit more of a friendship <laughs> but um I have a couple of funny theories about Case the Cowboy, who, which is his name in the. Uh, um, I I, th- I think it's his name in in the uh, in Hall of Mirrors. But one is in the beginning. He's uh, you, you know in the very beginning scenes of the, of the book. There's this there's this kind of young blonde boy who's sitting with uh, you know sitting with Reinhardt the DJ, and they're you know they're sharing their whiskey, and you know Reinhardt can tell the poor kid is doomed because he's you know he's he's one of these kind of magazines. Uh, he, he's sorry, he's selling uh, religious books and. And, you know, he's, you know, they're going door to door in these neighborhoods and he's managed to miss his ride. So he's taking the Greyhound, trying to intercept him. And uh, and I think he's the same guy as uh, I, as the cowboy at the end. That's that's my little theory. <laughs> And he's also a former Hollywood guy, right? Uh, I, I think there's a the, there's also a character who's who's this kind of um, yeah the sort of like seedy old kind of Hollywood type who who sleeps with uh, who kind of um, with the evil syphilitic uh, syphilitic bad guy kind of um, basically engineers the situation where the uh, where the station manager who's basically uh, Reinhardt's boss uh, who has this sort of this kind of red haired this kind of red headed kind of like um, oh kind of midwestern kind of like a uh, wife is sort of engineered into sleeping with this with this kind of crusty old old uh, Hollywood actor right in front of this uh, station manager and yeah it's it's kind of like a it's it's a very cruel kind of kind of scene but and then my other theory is, is well, so, so it's this kind of um, it's this sort of like this kind of hidden counter story this 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 history of this the story of, of the cowboy through you know how how this blonde blonde kid becomes the cowboy at the end so it's kind of like 
like running in parallel, the secret novel uh, behind the novel. And a little bit later, we, we can talk about how I think this is connected to, to uh, William Gibson's Neuromancer. But uh, uh, very briefly, I, th- I think I, I think the um, I think Case the Cowboy might end up being Case the Consul Cowboy, or at least a distant relative of him. Right. Yeah, that, that was one of the things that was interesting when you mentioned this, where you know you have that idea in you know the early cyberpunk of sort of like console cowboys or computer cowboys, and uh, but at the same time you also have this the lineage of this media world as sort of a big part of things as well, and navigating these sorts of new sort of information flows and so on, and and conspiracy worlds as well in particular. I was also intrigued because you know the so the the good, the bad, and the ugly is obviously so it's a Western film about these cowboys, but it's part of this trilogy. And so the first one was a direct adaptation of a samurai film, Yojimbo. And, you know, interestingly, you know, then in the sort of cyberpunk sort of genre broadly, you know, both of those things get kind of conflated and they're both sort of just these uh, heroic, anti-heroic sort of elements that sort of cyberpunks can draw on. And and so, you know, there you have this whole sort of history leading into this that is uh, sort of this is a sort of central point of both the sort of modern tech angle, but then also the uh, the cowboy angle, and the cowboy angle is also the sort of showman thing. Uh, so there's a lot going on there. I was also curious. You, you had mentioned uh, Geraldine as a problematic character. Yeah, I think one of the complaints with so so Robert Stone's um, his novels are, are are all very similar. I, I, I mean, in some ways, you know, every novelist is trying to write the same you know writes the same book over and over again. And but Robert Stone has been criticized a little bit in the past because he does these kind of Madonna whore female characters basically like there are a lot of a lot of nuns who are kind of fallen nuns and things like that and uh, and I know that neuro and that was um yeah so so she's definitely a slightly um I mean she's I, I think she's problematic in that well at least by contemporary standards just because she's she's just kind of a she just kind of soaks up abuse basically I mean she doesn't really um she doesn't really have that much agency except when she uh except when she well she escapes from an abusive boyfriend which is so that's kind of taking a step away from a situation and then she also kind of commits suicide so I I think by contemporary standards she'd be just kind of falling into that slightly problematic trope of kind of um kind of doomed doomed heroines but but yeah she's she's definitely yeah and then um poor poor Robert Stone I mean he got, if you go through the arc of his, his books is I don't know why his last book is this very strange one called the death of the black-eyed girl and um and it's about sort of a teacher kind of seducing his student and getting kind of tangled up in the school bureaucracy and it doesn't really fit in with the rest of his books except for having the same kind of tragic character except this one kind of like stabs him in the back right yeah i mean she you know always has this thing going on where she has this like scar across her face and doesn't like to explain and you know basically she ends up getting almost killed and then eventually arrested because she's sort of neglected by this main character and all she could really think to do toward the end is sort of just like chase after him and keep yelling out his name you know started out kind of interesting where you have like three sort of parts to the book and the first one goes back between her and him and so they they had this like sort of parallel thing going on where they're both new in town and trying to find work and he sort of just takes on this radio job for money and she's trying to get like a waitressing job but you Mm -hmm. know people are trying to push her into prostitution and she's sort of rejecting that and is a sort of interesting dynamic with that but then in book two onward she kind of becomes such a background character and is sort of just um, replaced with focus onto Morgan 
Ian Rainey, who is, yeah. is interesting in other ways, but as you're saying, he's he's doing this thing where he thinks he's helping out these people on welfare and that he's like almost a sort of social worker, but is actually part of this plot to uh, kick people off of welfare. Yeah, where he just kind of bumbles into, yeah, he's just kind of this bumbling kind of figure. Yeah, I, I it's, you know, there, it's such a beautiful scene between, between Reinhardt and Geraldine where they're kind of meeting each other in the, uh, oh, they're both working at a biscuit factory, at a cracker factory, or, or I guess a biscuit factory, and they and they kind of kind of catch a glimpse of one another through the uh, you know, and and then um, and then kind of forge that connection. And then you're right, she just kind of like just kind of recedes from view. I mean, it's a it's one of it. It's an early novel, so I mean, maybe he just kind of yeah. You know, there were too many threads to to kind of uh, to kind of hang on to. But it, it yeah, it is kind of a shame how how he kind of lets lets her go. But but I, at the very end, I mean, he does. I think he I guess he, he he is really triggered by her loss and kind of triggered into that kind of like I guess into that kind of final kind of resolution where he's kind of like like that's what kind of pushes him over the edge and kind of pushes him from being this sort of like you know kind of cog in the machinery to kind of like acting out on his own yeah I thought his um emotional reaction at the end was interesting where the you know he keeps saying like oh it's sad it's sad and people are pushing back on him as if he like doesn't seem to think it's sad yeah and he's, he's just saying it's sad it's sad and then when he he's at the bar at the end and someone says this other guy just went nuts because he had these baby shoes and his baby had died and and so the guy goes nuts and then you know i mean reinhardt always had this sort of uh instability where he'd get caught up in these loops and talking to himself and such and so he kind of just like takes on the this this uh, story basically and just starts saying the same thing that you know he's gonna smash the place up yeah yeah he's like they killed yeah but it, what was it they killed my girl now i'm gonna smash up the bar <laughs> and yeah it, it's funny does those those um yeah those kind of blips into his sort of like old musical past i mean i guess that's one of those you know they, like um especially when he's kind of on stage and he's sort of like it's almost kind of remembering kind of how he would embody the you know, we, we got a few glimpses of what he was like as a musician and you know like like when he does his audition for Juilliard and he just kind of like, oh, basically kind of like wielding this sort of like emotional energy and kind of like letting it kind of flow through him. And he gets a kind of moment of that at the end, like right where he's right before the explosion where he could probably have calmed the crowd. But then he just but then he just kind of like, yeah, he goes into this weird kind of like this weird kind of like racially loaded, strange rant and where he just kind of chooses a kind of, you know, chooses to kind of just send that kind Kind of you know instead of turning that music into turning that kind of kind of weird media moment into this kind of like into into something positive he turns it into into something terrible but um yeah it's 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 a really interesting it's really amazing how they deal with you know like just dealing with that, that scene of him kind of like playing with the uh you know playing with the newswire which were you know were these reams of paper that would uh my, my father was a journalist and so we used to we used to have one of those wire machines in our in our house and it would uh, go 24 hours a day, which is like an old dot matrix printer, basically. It would print off kind of like breaking news. And sometimes it would start chiming and it would have a certain number of, a, certain number of dings for how, how serious the news was. And supposedly a five five chime event was like a global nuclear war or something. And so it, you have this amazingly vivid scene where he's kind of like tearing these tearing these things off and then just kind of like assembling them into this, into this kind of like wild... Uh, 
in a way, kind of like it's that same kind of um, it's almost the same moment as him kind of playing uh, as the audition. But this is like where he's sort of like it's his audition with at the uh, WUSA, and he's and instead of uh, music and instead of connecting with his fellow musicians, he's connecting to this strange, horrible hall of mirrors zeitgeist of uh, of kind of awful conspiracy stuff. I, another thing that w- that's that's very interesting about the the comparison between um, Hall of Mirrors and the Good Bad and and Ugly is is also that um, apparently and they they mention it. I, I think they mention it at least once in Hall of Mirrors is that there was there was a kind of insurrection following the Civil War in uh, in New Orleans, just kind of based on the kind of um, where they tried to overthrow the sort of kind of union, the kind of former union backed kind of Republican kind of Reconstruction Party, and and they tried to kind of launch a basic basically a race war in I think it was either the 1860s or 1870s. And so, yeah, in some ways, New Orleans was probably very, you know, must have been a deliberate choice, just kind of thinking of, you know, thinking of how 100 years before they kind of tried to kind of kind of set off a kind of race war and kind of push again for maybe even push again for independence. But yeah, and I mean, him reaching into the zeitgeist is interesting, right? Because he's not doing this artistic music thing. It's something where he had never made money. And so, you know, in theory, there were sort of avenues for him there you know he might have gone in that way and this is this is this opportunity for him to be you know the, this to excel because he exce- he's shown to excel at, at the sort of radio hosting and he admires what he sees and the similar thing with the cowboy and and so it, it, you could almost imagine it as though he like doesn't believe it because he, you know he he has this scene where he's has like the one sort of scene outside of um, Morgan Rainey who where he's he gets in people's face and starts saying like I don't want to stay in a bar where people are throwing around these slurs and such yeah and such but but the guy running the radio station the managing it he says you know that Reinhardt feels the things he's saying and so he he give it gives this inherent picture that other people can see it and feel it and so you know besides the the, the I mean more general thing you might suggest is that you know you can't just like say the things he's saying casually and, and say it doesn't mean anything but even even as a, an act it seems like there's a layer in which he is sort of feeling those things even though he's also the, the only person who's you know on another level pushing back on it uh reminded me a bit of this is looking ahead a bit but american psycho where you oh, know yeah. he, he's the one guy who's like oh cool with the anti-semitic remarks and yeah. so on but then he goes and he's like killing people in the street but yeah but then you know you have this dynamic in the good the bad and the ugly where it's like you have the civil war going on and they're completely sort of uninterested in it other than as like a thing in which they can sort of it's it allows it has these um these set up sort of roots and it allows them to like navigate faster and such but otherwise it's this this hurdle for them that they're uninterested in and you know for the most part you know blondie the man with no name he's this relative good guy to the you know these other outlaw figures but they do the you know the, you mentioned the bridge thing earlier and that's like yeah. so first of all there's an actual like huge battle going on a lot of people die and they're they're bringing back this union soldier on this stretcher and they knock out the guys carrying it and they just throw the guy off the stretcher and they use it to carry the explosives to the bridge that the union officer was trying to defend and just blow it up to completely like disrupt the battle and allow them to like get past where it's happening and it's so it's, it's like this you know th- at that point it really goes past this kind of um indifference and they're really like messing with you know lives and the whole flow of the the war in a way <laughs> and it's it's and so th- th- then you know, it gets back 
to this dynamic of like the, the immorality versus like the immorality, you know, this sort of outlaw figure who is kind of, um, you know, left outside of society and makes his own way, which then becomes a sort of, you know, cyberpunk, the street makes its own uses for, for things kind of figure yeah. as this like console cowboy idea, right? But then it's, there, there are also these elements where it's like, you know, they do have these dips into like complete immorality. <laughs> yeah, they definitely, yeah, they, they definitely do. I mean, especially by, especially by sort of contemporary standards. I mean, yeah, just, um, yeah, in some ways you can't, you know, nowadays you couldn't kind of crawl back from, from a lot of these things, but it's, yeah, the way the good, the bad and the ugly kind of treated, treated just the passage of history as this kind of, as this kind of nuisance for them. It was, was kind of, kind of hilarious. Just, yeah, just kind of like, you know, the, you have the doom kind of union soldier, union kind of, uh, kind of colonel kind of saying, oh yeah, we're throwing all our men at this every day. We throw our men at it. And I wish we could, you know, I wish we could just move on and abandon it, but that's what we've got to do. And they just kind of like, just kind of walk through the, walk through the obstacle and stuff like that. And, and I, I guess one of my, one of the, you know, just to go back to, to go back to cyberpunk, you know, in some ways I think of, of Hall of Mirrors as this kind of urtext for Neuromancer, which of course is the canonical thing that kind of came up with the name cyberspace and all that. And there's partly, I, I mentioned it a little bit before, but because there's Case, the console cowboy who, um, you know, I, I, I think might be a, a kind of teasing reference to the case in in, uh, in Hall of Mirrors, but uh, Hall, you know, they also kind of have the same kind of structure as well. It's sort of like, you know, so, you know, it's this, this kind of amoral person who gets kind of, gets kind of sucked into somebody else's, somebody else's kind of mad kind of tyrannical scheme in this, in this, uh, this case to, uh, to release uh, the first, what would you, what we would call today artificial general intelligence and uh, kind of release it from its bounds and a spaceship uh, you know, orbiting the earth and but there, there are a lot of kind of uh, kind of amusing coincidences like um, there's this one scene that's uh, that takes place in this in this uh, well in, in neuromancer it's a shuriken shop and there's and in uh, hall of mirrors it's this razor blade shop and that's they're both very very similar scenes and uh, you can draw a lot of parallels between uh, the figure of molly millions and uh, and and geraldine molly millions is a little bit more a uh, little bit more of a film noir heroin than that but uh there are a lot of kind of funny little coincidences that, that kind of stack up uh between them but yeah it's definitely you know that you know traditionally you say you know cyberpunk comes from you know film noir and these hard-boiled detective characters who are these you know kind of you know the, the, the archetypal one is is the private eye is kind of seen it all and is kind of just hired to do a job and you know and and as the world is kind of corrupt and immoral around him you know just kind of is is just trying to do a good job and then kind of in the course of it just kind of gets sucked into a, a into a little bit of a narrative that kind of often in, kind of involves him it's always a him kind of doing something a little bit good you know so there's there's definitely a flavor of that but, but I, I've, I love that you pointed out the, uh, the that you pointed out the the roots that cyberpunk has with with, uh, with with Japanese film as well especially especially with samurai movies because they are definitely Ronin and you know of course you know William Gibson just you know really really kind of dove kind of plunged himself into kind of japanese kind of iconography and kind of you know and, and his his view of the future you know was basically japan is the sort of intellectual kind of center of the universe and technological center of the universe and yeah so it's definitely a kind of powerful force in it and yeah and and you mentioned um i, I think you you mentioned or we were gonna we're supposed to talk about the um just the kind of relationship of kind of these these people living with you know it's sort of like living in an incredible what 
we would say today is a very unequal kind of society. And certainly the old West was this completely unequal kind of like, you know, there were, you know, there were the saloon owners and the sort of, you know, the, the Levi Strausses of, of the universe kind of selling mining supplies and things like that. And, you know, and then just the kind of wretched, the kind of wretched people kind of going out there where there's, you know, going out onto the frontier where there's no kind of like, you know, there's no law, there's no protection against them and just getting kind of basically, you know, like fighting like crabs in a bucket over that little scraps and, uh, you know, and usually dying in the process. But uh, it's, um, and you see a little bit of that in, in Hall of Mirrors too. It's just, that's, you know, it's sort of this incredibly unequal society, these sort of, these sort of like the wealthy Hollywood cowboy, the sort of like the, the kind of chosen few deciding what to do with kind of the, just kind of flippantly kind of cutting all these people off of the welfare roles and just, uh, you know, and then just not really expecting a reaction from, from the little guy, you know, but getting exactly that. I mean, at one point, the, uh, the kind of bad guy says, says, well, you know, I didn't expect, you know, I didn't expect the bomb going off, but, you know, when you stir, you know, when you stir up the muck in the river, you're bound to stir up a few fi big fish, you know? So it's, and I guess in some ways that's, that's sort of the theme, but in, it's sort of a theme in all, all, in all three of these, these works. I'm babbling a little bit. You know, it's with the inequality, right? You know, what it, this sets up is, so one, you have this financial desperation, uh, but then you also have the, these sorts of um, disposable masses, you know, in the, the good and the bad Nyagla, you have the union soldiers where like the, the officer is saying how like, you know, which, which the side that wins is basically the side that can get their soldiers more drunk and more willing to just sort of rush headlong into this. And and so they all go and they get like slaughtered and, you know, it's really terrible. And the, you know, what allows these outlaw figures to thrive is that unless you get your face on a, a poster like uh, Tuco, you can kind of just like be whoever you can kind of like get away with claiming to be. Yeah. And so the, they, they can operate outside of these sort of trekking mechanisms. And then this leads into this idea, particularly early on with the internet of it as the sort of wild west frontier where it's like you can kind of just make up whatever pseudonym and identity you want and you can do whatever outside of certain sort of observances and so on and then as it becomes less anonymous then it that sort of fades away but you have that sort of dynamic going on and you know the contrast to that is the sort of uh, world of media and surveys and police and so on you, you get in Hall of Mirrors and you know there, there are different ways of sort of pushing against that. One is the sort of information asymmetry that you have in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And then there was also the weird dynamic with Morgan Rainey and the sort of welfare scam where, you know, they were trying to scam the system out of shutting down the welfare with these fake reports. Oh, and, yeah. and and so it's like, they call it the big store. And it's this whole thing where it's like, you have like these actors, you know, setting up where they, they fill out these like fake surveys, make it seem like the all these people are scamming the the welfare and they need to purge the roles and all of this stuff and um there there, there was a one of the interesting things is like the, one of the last people that morgan rainey interviews is like it's like what's your name and it's like oh uh rainey and it's like oh i'm rainey and then it's like it turns out the person's name is like hollywood rainey and it's like where are you from in the state and he's like oh i came from this town over there and that was where rainey was from and he gets like really uncomfortable because like oh, this person is like me and there's like that mirroring 
but it's also we see early on he's interviewing this woman and she's like oh you need me to be that name yeah that's me and there's someone in the the background yelling in and like guiding her and it, it has this this weird dynamic where it almost feeds into these these stereotypes where it does seem like these people are scamming it and taking on these fake identities and like oh I'll, I'll be whoever you know you're giving the checks to but then it has this like twist where it's like no 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 this is like a this is all like this is all this weird illusion that's propped up to make you think this and that it's all fake and then then that's the same thing with the radio where he puts on these shows and spins this narrative and they they say very explicitly how it doesn't matter if what we're saying isn't literally happening right now but it's basically true if we kind of make it true directionally accurate as as people like to say now the 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 big story yeah that's that's such a I, I'm, so, I'm so glad you brought up the the big story i um a couple of a couple of months ago i i i read a book of scams uh written in the 70s kind of like and uh and and that was one of them and there's it just has this this, this amazing kind of history of these kind of like massive swindles that people would play and and, and they, they they said that the big store is like one of these kind of like especially kind of like big american scam that um it, they most often kind of used it in uh with sort of investment scams like you would you know you would basically basically kind of yeah kind of like create this sort of front that just kind of like uh you know kind of gives the illusion of all this kind of like uh, of all this kind of activity and all this kind of you know when it's all just kind of it's all an illusion designed just designed to convince you to kind of like basically invest or kind of like you know or kind of lose you know lose your money to one of these what one of these schemes it's and yeah that's it's such a strange i i mean especially when you you know i guess you know the vietnam war was was still kind of heating up and all that but if you think about just sort of like you know there's you know just the difference between the sort of like you know they're they're kind of sort of like ibm computerized kind of mcnamara kind of like view of you know kind of kind of view of society and you know and these kind of massive construction projects and you know these sort of like uh you know these sort of like brains in the back room kind of like ideas of of what reality is like and then and then you you know and then you go into the you know then you go into the like you know go into these dangerous zones and then you realize that this is you know then you realize you've got you have to deal with the the local leaders you have to deal with you know who are corrupt and crooked and have their own kind of uh have their own very sinister agenda does as well and and it's you know so it's it functions really well as a, as a metaphor for for a lot of things that were kind of going on just these kind of like you know these sort of weird kind of kind of racial tensions that were kind of going up you know these kind of like people sort of you know this sort of rapidly expanding kind of media stuff in the 1960s it's kind of people were very very you know kind of very very aware of being kind of surveyed and kind of kind of uh kind of captured and and you know in some like i you know in some ways even into the you know, even in the 70s and 80s, you could still kind of disappear. You know, you could still kind of like totally disappear and go off grid. I guess in some ways you could still join the French Foreign Legion. But, you know, in some ways, um, you know, I was born in 1979. And, um, you know, I, I was around a fair number of kind of scoundrelly people. And, and it's always in the back of my mind that I could just kind of like, you know, go into the graveyard and find find somebody who was born in 1979 and assume their identity. You know, if, if stuff ever got really, really bad. But that's, that's it's all 
done with, you know, that, that kind of digital, the digital layer has kind of seeped in to every kind of facet of society. And so we're, we're just kind of, you know, you see these things in Wired magazine where they, the guy, you know, the, the journalist tries to disappear and they track him down in like 10 minutes or something. And, you know, it's, and I guess in some way, you know, that's, it's one of the reasons why Hall of Mirrors feels so kind of vital today. It's, you know, it's dealing with that same kind of like that, well, in some ways the disconnect between the, between the sort of digital kind of governance layer kind of forcing its, forcing itself down on, on, on people. And, you know, the kind of, the kind of, the sort of, the sort of like every man kind of human layer that's getting kind of, kind of chewed up and kind of repurposed. And, you know, I guess we're, you know, this is the sort of biggest kind of like, you know, kind of like a conflagration of, you know, people's anger and, you know, kind of like, you know, since, well, since 2008, since, you know, since the, since the nineties, but it's just, it's like, yeah, this, this kind of disconnect between the sort of, the sort of world of, of Facebook or world of the U S government to, you know, world of kind of people kind of, kind of gazing down and how people really react, how weird they really are on the internet, how they, you know, the sort of like identity that exists between the facade of Instagram or the facade of Facebook or, you know. Yeah. And I mean, the, the, what I was really reminded of when I was reading the description of the big store where it's like, you have this fake storefront with like, it seems like a bustling business is uh, this other proto cyberpunk story, you know, do Android's dream of electric sheep comes out two years later. And you have this like really wild scene in there that doesn't end up in like Blade Runner, but you have the, this fake police station. Yeah. And, and it's this, it becomes, you know, here it's this image of this, you know, really corrupt, you know, system for shutting down the welfare, but there it's like this fake, you know, uh, corrupt police or slash corrupt corporate dynamic where they, they, they have like this fake police that sort of obscures things and like really warps uh, Deckard's sort of sense of like reality. Yeah, I, I mean, just, and I mean, just the opening kind of pages of it where he's, he's you know, his wife is dialing in her mood you know it's just oh, what is it like zero zero one debate internally about suicide or something right yeah and so you're getting you're getting these moods handed down through this sort of advanced version of the radio there's interesting things going on in the novel about the um, different mediums where you know i mean reinhardt goes to the movies early on and, and <laughs> so you know we're also looking at a movie but there's this idea that comes up a, a few times about how the radio is actually just distinctly useful in sort of being persuasive in this way that, you know, the television kind of obscures things in certain ways, but something about the radio really gets people hooked into seeing certain patterns uh, is really interesting. And I was also wanted to talk about the information asymmetry idea where, so you in the good, the bad, and the ugly. So first you have this dynamic of different people know different parts of how to find the goal. And so that they're, they can't quite quite kill each other because they need they need each other to help get it. And then what allows Blondie to sort of really thrive is he's not just sort of ruthless, but he's like a very clever schemer. And so, the, you know, the problem with the three-way standoff is that if, you know, basically the information's supposed 
easily written on on this rock in the middle of them and you want to be the last man standing so you can get the goal and so if you shoot one person then that person is taken care of and the other person can just shoot you in that time that it takes you to do this and so it kind of rewards like the last man to act but you also don't want to be so slow that like one guy just blasts both of them but basically what allows him to thrive is that he knows that Tugo doesn't actually have bullets in his gun and so he only has to worry about Angel Eyes and just wait for Angel Eyes whose like attention is very nervously split between these two figures to sort of drift just a little bit toward Tuco and then that's his sort of time to strike and and so you have this dynamic of you know where you you control these sort of informational flows you can sort of control you know where the money flows the lives all of this and that's that's the whole idea with running the surveys is where it's like it's implied that there's already sort of strong public support for thinning out the funding for welfare but basically the surveys give it this veneer of sort of justification where it's like oh we have these documents that show it and and it's it's almost entirely faked and so it's it's really just this excuse to say like oh we have um the stats to justify it. and and but it's a, so it's an interesting dynamic where it's like um basically you do that and then you also control the radio station and then you also do this rally and you also sort of slip in some other people there to act as audience and it's framing this whole world in this way that you know you, you have these sorts of uh you know gunslingers in the movie doing to really kind of win out and get their gold and wa- wander off into the sunset yeah that's such a beautiful scene like, like isn't it about two, you get about two minutes of them deliberating you know just kind of calculating and scheming and in, in that you know when it's the sort of um, it's the three-man kind of kind of uh kind of standoff and you know and just the tension just goes absolutely crazy until it just kind of cracks it's yeah no and, and it really is yeah it's that kind of it's and and that's something that carries through into into neuromancer as well like that you know it's sort of like you know who you know it's the the artificial intelligence kind of engineering it all behind the scenes and kind of like this unknowable kind of intelligence that's so much beyond what anything else can anything else um and just kind of using everybody as a kind of as a as a meat puppet well not only only molly millions is literally a meat puppet but yeah the the and it's so funny just just seeing all the uh the with the information asymmetry just and seeing the power and, and just kind of looking at that in the context of um, you know of people talking about fake news and all that and just how how, it, how similar it you know I, I watched this little um just before this i watched this clip of uh robert stone talking about his uh, about his tabloid days and just uh you know how, how he worked for this place it was basically the same as the same as one of those wretched fake news websites today where they just kind of like would take things out of context and just kind of like to, just basically kind of do everything they could to make things seem like they like seem like it was real and kind of like cast it uh you know add a little bit of a find a debauched picture or something like that and kind of cast it around and just kind of anything they could do to kind of snag someone's attention and you know and they had this whole kind of like had this whole kind of catalog of kind of kind of phony newspapers and magazines all designed to kind of capture someone's attention and kind of feed into their prejudices or sexual appetites or you know just get them kind of whipped into a frenzy and then then to think of all of mirrors is this kind of like you know just somebody winding all these kind of creatures up but you know winding everybody up and and just you know it's a kind of worst case scenario of, of what could possibly happen if somebody had all the control you know had all control of all the media in the town basically and and had kind of agents in the in the police you know had had enough influence in the police to kind of you know 
hold 70,000 people down and rile up other people. But, uh, and yeah, it's, it's funny to, it, it was funny to, to reread it and, you know, after seeing the kind of Capitol Hill insurrection and just kind of, you know, and how people are just saying, oh, it's, it's all driven by fake news and we're all kind of, kind of driven mad by Facebook and all that. What's also interesting is, um, Reinhardt, you know, is the one, he's the voice on the radio that's sort of getting people riled up. And he also speaks at the rally to get people riled up. But, you know, as we were saying before, it ends where he's, he's also just sort of caught within this system and he's ends up, you know, losing Geraldine and getting riled up himself and is sort of, uh, you know, not, he's, he's not on the level where he's scheming. He sort of just understands kind of basically, as you're saying, the zeitgeist and what sort of needs to come out to sort of make him the money and, and so on. But he, he gets caught up in the, the same thing himself, ends up, you know, really flipping out at the end. Yeah, you kind of wonder what what, what happens to I, I mean, I, I guess in some ways he kind of embodies the voice of, you know, he he goes from embodying the voice of of the man, as they would say back then, as into kind of like embodying the voice of the people and kind of, you know, just he, he's still a he's still a, a clarinet, you know, he's still a kind of mouthpiece for the zeitgeist, but this time it's just coming from the people, I guess. Yeah. And, and so within the good, the bad and the ugly, right, you have this these interesting moral dynam- dynamics where Angel Eyes had he's, you know, really ruthless and he'll just kill whoever, you know, just tear through people mm. to try to get his money and he'll betray everyone. But he sort of has a moral code, which is that if he takes on a job, he'll he'll do it. And so he's like one of the people he kills early on. He's saying, like, well, you know, I said I would do it, I'd said I'd kill you, so blast them. And and Tuco is sort of the opposite. He has no moral code, he'll just sort of betray anyone for any reason. And and then Blondie is sort of the only one who's kind of like really has his own framework that he operates by. And and so Reinhardt, you know, is, is sort of caught up in this this thing where it's like, you know, he sort of views it as a job and gets caught up in that way. And so I was also interested in the sort of dynamics of narrative tension where so one of it is, is that you have these people with these different moral codes running up against each other, right? Where, yeah. you know, Rainey as well as is, is caught up in like, he's doing this job. And even after he knows it's kind of sketchy, he thinks maybe he could salvage it doing his, his own way and really can't and things sort of just get worse. And he's like, ends up being part of this guy getting in with the truck of fireworks and blowing everything up. And but this is also one of the big things in the film where, you know, it has all these sort of close ups, it has this great use of music, and so on. And so, you know, I mean, going back to the, the standoff as well, it's like, you know, one of the things going on with like the gun as like a technology, right, is that in half a second, you can sort of kill someone. Yeah, it's, you know, that's the whole idea with the gunslinger. And so you need to set up these dynamics of how do you maintain narrative tension? How do you maintain that excitement, right? And so that's where the the asymmetry comes in. And also, you know, the the standoff dynamics and all of that. And I I like to actually show that a, a few times in classes where I'm talking about really contemporary stuff and how you have these informational dynamics of it's like, you know, like you can sort of like send like an email or something and like destroy someone and it'll take like a second. But yeah. that, but then it's like, how do you maintain your attention there? And it's a similar dynamics where it's like people in standoffs or um, people caught up within different levels of high, these hierarchies, people cut off within these different moral frameworks, right? And so all these things that we see in both of these works that are setting up the sort of flow and tension of the, these narratives then becomes the sort of guiding force of how we navigate these sort of uh, informational inequalities in the sort of digital age and and the, the sort of power 
power differentials there. Yeah, no, no, that's that's a great way of uh, that, that's a great way of putting it. I I was yeah, I think Tuco is uh, I, I guess his he does have a code. It's kind of I, I guess I would call him squishy. As he's he's kind of I guess he has motive because he's driven by family. But I, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's all yeah, the, and the asymmetry just kind of plays out in that in that that thing at the end. It's uh, it's yeah, they're all kind of wound up and they kind of like the, yeah, the whole movie is them kind of winding them all up and then just putting them into that moment and then seeing how it all plays out. Well, what's really exciting in the film and with the genre generally, right, is this Clint Eastwood sort of character who's just so good at all of this and, you know, is this like expert sharpshooter, can blast the rope at a distance and like just do this scam again and again at the beginning and, and so on. And so that's that's why they bring that same sort of figure into this rally in A Hall of Mirrors and, you know, this is a sort of like image of what you sort of aspire to be in a way, you know, in part because these sorts of dynamics help you navigate the sort of craziness of the world. Yeah, it's like kind of it's like kind of dream of precision, you know, the kind of like, you know, just the, the sort of magic that you kind of feel when, you know, either, you know, you see somebody kind of like going into the kind of flow states of, you know, being incredibly well practiced or or playing a sort of perfect piece of piece of kind of music or something like that. And yeah, I guess it, it, it's, it's funny seeing how different it is and uh, um, yeah, just kind of articulated in film with this, you know, these kind of guys building up to this kind of last gunfight and then just, yeah, this just kind of like um, the other side of the kind of mirror where, where you're just kind of watching this, yeah, just kind of watching the effects of all this stuff at kind of at a distance, kind of like all, all these kind of like overlapping kind of, kind of layers of, of kind of meaning and consciousness and stuff like that. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's funny how the, I, I, I don't think I'd ever really kind of thought about the title, the Hall of, like Hall of Mirrors that much. I, I had a little bit, but you know, it's just like, oh, it's this grossly distorted kind of picture of something. It's this kind of, kind of, kind of grotesque. Um, I, I think my other, you know, I, I wanted to make a, uh, wanted to compare it uh, to I think, um, Nathaniel West's Day of the Locust, which is a kind of a, a, a story of a, a similar kind of uh, figure to Reinhardt, who um, sorry, he, a painter who kind of leaves the Yale School of School of the Arts and School of Art in uh, in the 30s and moves out to moves out to Los Angeles to try to like create a perfect painting of uh, kind of the burning of Los Angeles, and then he ends up being a kind of kind of sucked into the kind of Hollywood machine, kind of painting sets, and kind of has this. this um, but Nathaniel West kind of described his his characters as as grotesques, and so so I wonder if that was kind of the seed for for this book as well. But uh, for Hall of Mirrors, but it also ends in a riot. Right, yeah, I mean, and also, I mean, interestingly, with this comparison, right, is is you have the Civil War as as this act of rebellion. But it was interesting seeing these sort of side by side. Is so as we can see in Hall of Mirrors, there's all of this you know lineage of uh, racial tension and the civil rights movement and, you know, lingering racism and all of this. But uh, with uh, the good, the bad and the ugly, right, you have all of this stuff going on with the Civil War where, you know, they're, they're captured at one point and then they're like kind of in the background of an actual battle and stuff. And the, the sort of uh, racial and sort of slave dynamics of the war, as far as I know, are like completely absent. It's it's all just sort of geographical, and, you know, almost incidental, like well, you're, you're on either team a or team b and you got you better hope you like guess which disguise you need to be yeah, like when they think they they, they see the uh the confederates because it turns out that it's the union army kind of coated in dust all oh, right yeah, yeah uh, and and so that but it's like so completely um you know removed of of ideology and then i was thinking of this point toward the end of 
Hall of Mirrors where Reinhardt tries to say to someone, oh, I'm with the cause. And the guy goes, is like, Americans don't believe in causes. The American goal is to go around the world and violently end all causes that and get rid of all this sort of ideology and stuff. And, you know, bringing it back to this, this dynamic of like trying to imagine these figures as not explicitly immoral, but that, you know, they somehow take on this amoral space and that they're sort of outside of those dynamics. I feel like there's there's an interesting thing going on in both of these of, of trying to understand these points of tension, you know, in, in a way that that tries to, you know, sort of erase the, the, the sort of ideological struggles involved and then also sort of open up this sort of space for the, these strictly amoral, you know, sort of individualistic figures. And I don't know, I, I those sort of interesting seeing sort of elements of that in both of these works and, and what's sort of driving them in the characters and such. Yeah, it, it's it's funny just, it, just the, it, because they're also operating in amoral spaces too, right? Because, you know, like a war is a place where, you know, the, the you know, the, there's a total inversion of, of kind of normal standards. You can, you know, you can murder, you can, uh, you know, you can, you know, you're, you can pillage people's houses, you can break down doors and things like that. And and, and so I guess that's, that's and that's kind of the same thing that's that's going on in, in New Orleans, or, or or that they're trying to, to push, for, they're they're trying to push for. So so these you know so you get these kind of like these these characters who are used to kind of operating you know operating in the shadows and these kind of like and uh, you know on the frontier and in these kind of you know frontier is another place where there's no kind of it's this amoral kind of area and it's just them kind of bumping up against this kind of like this kind of encroaching kind of kind of land of morality and immorality. Right. You know I I've wrote I've wrote about this kind of in the context of you know this you know kind of fifth generation warfare and kind of people getting kind of you know kind of whipped into a frenzy and and all of that and I think it's it really it really is an it's it's really an artifact you know just kind of reading it kind of coming back to it after about ten years it's really such a strange artifact of its time because it feels so it feels so contemporary just you know partly because of you know just the way that it handles kind of media and the way that kind of media kind of kind of seeps into the you know seeps into the consciousness and kind of deals with these kind of flows and deals with these kind of you know and deals with some of the same kind of things we're going through right now so it was it's it was a really kind of intense kind of thing to read while I was kind of watching these kind of events kind of playing out I think that was was kind of the most surprising thing about kind of going back to it uh, how, how about you do you, do you have any kind of closing kind of thoughts about uh, good bad and the ugly and hall of mirrors was well, interested you know you had said that maybe Tuka was is family driven mm-hmm. and I was, I was curious because we have that scene where they they go to the mission and we meet Tuco's brother yeah. and he says so the mother had died and the father had actually just died mm-hmm. and he wanted Tuco there and he wasn't there and the brother asked Tuco like what have you done other than evil and he doesn't really have an answer and he really kind of just wants to get back out on the road with Blondie and try to pursue the, the money and I don't know I, I, there's a, this dynamic there where you know you have Clint Eastwood's character as sort of aspirational figure right that we you want to sort of you know he's he's a bit of an anti-hero you know you don't necessarily think he's a wholly good but that 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 level of skill is sort of aspirational but there's there's a also a, this level of critique in here of and and I mean I guess you had said earlier how this is like a very sort of rough unequal time soul frontier life is very rough but you know this outlaw life isn't you know glamorized exactly right it's it's this really complete destruction of you know the family and bonds and it's this the whole film
film is this very holy male space. And, you know, whereas Reinhardt at least sort of sort of has Geraldine, you know, as we we're saying, she kind of falls in this, the background quite a bit, but he at least sort of has this idea of like trying to form a life and like set up like a kitchen with her and things like that and establish this home. The, the sort of cowboy image, right, is this holy isolated, you know, it's just them on their own, every man for himself, you get the gold and it's sort of just inherently good because then you sort of, you know, money is, is power in a way. And, you know, it's, it's very, you know, interesting dynamic that that's different from the very vast systemic power structures going on in, in Hall of Mirrors, right? Where it's like wanting to control towns and populations and things. And really that these figures just sort of want to go off on their own. And it, it so it's, I thought that was sort of an interesting dynamic of these sort of different visions of, of where things could go that like, is there that possibility of being your own person? And do you even sort of want that? Is that aspirational? And then also, you know, to what extent is it, is it really just the struggle to sort of map out a space that's not being basically controlled and oppressed through these sort of power and informational structure. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's funny. I I started thinking about the the big you know about the the uh the big store scam uh you know as you were saying that and and I remember one of uh, in this this book um it was called Hustlers and Con Men by like Jay something Nash and and it from 1975 and and you know a lot of these scammers especially in the old west when they would when they would make all their money and they would kind of get the sort of big score you know they would you know a lot of them would like knowingly would would go to craps games and go to these kind of crooked kind of card games and knowingly just blow it all you know just because they just wanted that life it, like they just wanted to kind of keep kind of like keep kind of living in that kind of like kind of like um, you know living on the margins and living on the edge and kind of like gambling and letting it all go and then just kind of scraping it all back together again and and uh and just living completely outside of the norms yeah and maybe to sort of start wrapping things up and you had said one of the things that was interesting was how sort of contemporary hall of mirrors feels there was a line a short line that I, I really liked that you know really captured a lot of what's going on in the book and also what's going on in the film and then also you know the elements of cyberpunk and then how we live now with sort of like gig economy and, and things like you know independent media and all of this where it's like it says unusual times demand unusual hustles and you know that's sort of just like what everyone's doing in both of these works you know there are things are chaotic and it creates the space for the sort of amoral or immoral moments of opportunism or you know in the case of Geraldine acts of desperation things like that and it's it really you know captured us all the sort of different directions things are going and the you know the the sort of possibilities these characters see laid out for them yeah no it, it, it really like I, I guess in some ways just you know the digitization of platform of everything just you know it's it's like you know returning us to primordial ooze in some ways and so we all just have to kind of find our little niches and kind of carve our you know kind of create our tiny little tiny little space with our, our gig you know with our gigs and our sub stacks and things like that and so yeah that, that probably is why why it feels so you know we, we're certainly living in increasingly interesting times i think when i was uh back when i was in the in the futurist uh industry that was kind of the only kind of thing that 
was that we could count on was that things would be increasingly unstable and increasingly strained. Yeah. Um, also, but so do you say you wanted to bring in something from um, someone mentioned, or did you bring that in there? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I sort of gave that away. Yeah. No. No. One of the things I, I I'd written about this. You know, I wrote an essay about uh, the insurrection and hardly an insurrection about the Capitol Hill, the storming of Capitol Hill, and um, you know, I'd, I'd mentioned Hall of Mirrors and uh, and Sam Lipside, who's uh, who was I, I think was mentored by Robert Stone, and Sam Lipside is kind of one of these. Um, he was he was one of he was one of my teachers at, at Columbia, and he was uh, and so he wrote in and he said, you know, um, he read my essay. He's like, well, I, you know, I was, said I've been thinking, you know, he's been. It's like I too have been thinking a lot about uh, about poor Reinhardt, and you know, in these times, and he's and then he said, you totally, you know, you totally miss the end of the book. He was like, you totally miss the the end of it, where uh, you know, where where Reinhardt suddenly kind of uh, suddenly freaks out at the end, and and uh, you know, he we, we've touched on this a little bit, but you know, says you know, you know he's walking towards the grain greyhound, and Rein, Reinhardt watched the tip of the arrow blink on and off. That's my corner, he thought. He's a survivor. They killed my girl, Reinhardt said, walking down the street. I'm gonna bust up the bar, you know. And so, so again, just kind of re- so he he was the one who kind of focused my attention on that kind of like that moment where he suddenly kind of like gets kind of shaken out of shaken out of that haze of kind of illusion and shaken out of that kind of you know kind of where that this is the moment where the hall of mirrors shatters and and he's kind of realizes it's just the only thing he can do is take action and so he's just you know he's he's going to kind of put his fists up and you know kind of go go into the bar and bash everything up because that's all you can do right yeah it's it's an interesting also you said that's all he could do because it's with rainy he keeps talking as though he's like he's like gonna like assassinate someone or something and then like people like ask him about it or suggest something like that and he's like what no that that's that's immoral i can't do that i'm not gonna do that uh and so it's like he he's he has so much energy and anger going on at the the sort of the racial inequality that he's seeing and like he that he thought he was being employed to help and is only turns out he's only exacerbating and you know he just doesn't really know what to do with it because he, he he's so sort of morally bound up in you know i mean sort of normal social mores uh, yeah but- yeah he's over socialized right he he's he's just he's paralyzed and it, you know he he hasn't quite been pushed over the edge like like reinhardt has like he hasn't been pushed down to the very bottom so he can kind of like kind of break out of it and you know what you would have suggested also in hall of mirrors and maybe we could sort of end on this note is is how what you see in these extremes is also reflecting part of this feeling that everyone is sort of feeling in certain ways right and so you have that in you have like these sort of left-wing counterculture of the 1960s and you know at the same time you have the sort of emerging right-wing populism you know the and you have sort of a lot of sort of activity going on responding to a lot of sort of social failings and you know and so there, there's a point where it says what's going on out there reinhardt said is that there are like a few billion people walking around and every one of them has a head with a lot of stuff going on in it and if you want to hear what that sounds like just turn on the radio you don't need television to see it you could just walk outside that door and put your hand in its goddamn side 